Listener supported. WNYC Studios. In 2016, an estimated $1.4 billion was spent on digital advertising by local, state, and national campaigns. A 789% increase from 2012. That's according to a report from Borel Associates, which tracks ad spending. Now, we also know there was a very well-funded and organized disinformation campaign run out of Russia. A lot of questions remain, though, about the rules of the road here. In short, there's little regulation for online political advertising. One challenge, the sphere is always shifting. As technology advances and new apps are developed, at times the question isn't even who paid for this, but is what I'm seeing even reality or a deep fake? A deep fake is a doctored video that shows a person, often a public figure, saying or doing something they have not actually done. Sometimes these are pretty harmless, like the case of Rasputin singing Beyonce's Halo. But deep fakes and technology like this can be used for more nefarious purposes too, like this doctored video of Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And then he had a press conference in the Rose Garden with all this um, Sure, sort of visual. Questioning Nancy Pelosi's mental fitness, the way she slurs, the way she repeats herself, right? Yeah. She always looked like she's a non-functioning um, alcoholic. Uh-huh. Uh, and she slur her words. That's she's rambling right. over her words. And these ads can get amplified in traditional news media, too. Like in that clip you just heard from Fox News guests. Fox eventually offered an on-air correction on one of their shows, but the horse had already been led out of the barn. TV gives the Internet a level of credibility. And it could happen to any of us. The show could be a deep fake right now, and how would you know? Don't worry, it's really me, I promise. Except no imitations. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway, and today, it's all about the world of digital political advertising. Still, the internet is a gift of sorts to candidates, providing them with a direct line of communication to their would-be supporters. It is an incredible opportunity for a candidate to become known with voters from day one. That's Patrick Graffini. He's a Republican strategist, partner, and co-founder of Echelon Insights, a polling and data analytics firm. I asked him what role the digital sphere is playing in the political process these days. Digital is both sort of a referendum, sort of a voice of the people in that process that is no longer a function of the Washington, D.C. invisible primary. It's a function of who seems really interesting to people online, who can aggregate, you know, a lot of uh, potential early support, which translates into early money. And you're seeing that shape the Democratic race right now in terms of uh, even this donor threshold that is you know, being used. You can't just be a serious senator right, and just announce and get taken seriously uh, and be presumed to get taken seriously and just go to big fundraisers. You have to get at least 65,000 donors, which is something new this year. And it has dramatically changed how the candidates are acting and going about things in this early stage of the process. Tell me how things have changed in the time that you've been working on campaigns, the ways in which you see advertising to voters via our traditional sources, television, radio, mail, versus 
getting to their eyeballs and ears through a digital platform. So in the commercial world, digital has outpaced television in terms of the amount of spending that you know is being used to reach consumers. Um, in the political arena, it's more like 10 or 20% of spending is digital across sort of all the different campaigns that are out there. And there are a lot of reasons why that, that, that gap, but politics has lagged behind for the most part. Now, I, I think that in the last, um, you know, you saw the Trump campaign sort of break the barrier, uh, spending 40, 50 percent of their ad dollars on digital in the last uh, in the last presidential election, something that really made Democrats, I think, sit up and take notice. And you see, I, I think Republican Senate campaigns and Republican campaigns in general spent, you know, setting as a baseline benchmark, and obviously it varies race by race, um, but setting as a benchmark about 20% of their ad money is going to go to digital. And in a sense, the Democrats have actually, you know, you look at the numbers, um, they've been further behind in that. It's been more like 5 or 10% for most of the Senate races, uh, for dollars spent trying to persuade voters through digital platforms as compared to your standard 30-second TV ads. So why only 20% and not 50%? It's a different audience, right? I mean, uh, politics yep. is a different audience. So, uh, you know, when we talk about TV, when we talk about consumer products, it's the demo. It's either 18 to 49 or however 25 to 54, however you define that. And younger people live their lives almost exclusively online. Digital is really the only way uh, that you're going to be able to reach somebody in their 20s right today. But politics is very different than that, ultimately. And particularly when we talk about in this Democratic primary in the last in the midterm elections, nearly 60% of voter, voters were over 50. So the discrepancy is really accounted for in, in within those over 50 voters, TV and even broadcast television is still a very powerful medium for uh, the people who are casting votes in the election and casting votes specifically in primary elections. Mm -hmm. A lot of Democrats have raised this point that uh, you raised earlier, which is the fact that they felt left behind on the digital space, that Republicans, it wasn't just Trump, but that they'd been outpaced at every level by Republicans. What do you think happened? How did Republicans gain an advantage in this sphere that were Democrats didn't? I have? don't think any side has any one advantage. I mean, we talk about, like, you know, on the, in the 2018 election, you know, Democrats had act blue, Republicans didn't have anything. So the way I would frame it as, uh, as Republicans and Democrats have decided to specialize and do different things online. So I think that a lot of the success that Republicans had in the 2016 election was due to Donald Trump being a very different kind of candidate who um, could uh, would say and do things that other candidates did not. And that turns out to be a very appealing formula for success online, particularly for raising money online. Let's go back to the 2016 election. You know, he was self-funding his race for the primary. That worked. But, um, you know, he's pretty rich, but not that rich in terms of self-fund the general election campaign would have been an entirely different story. And so he, by necessity, was forced to build an operation. And, you know, he didn't have necessarily the support of the big Republican donor class. Um, so really, all that left him with was this energetic base of supporters. And I think what we have found, I think, on both the Democratic side and on the Republican side, is that that base, when it's fully operational, 
uh, can do so much more for a candidate than even the best high-dollar donor-giving operation. We saw that, you know, Obama versus Clinton. We saw that uh, even with Bernie Sanders' race in 2016. So it really is worth investing in revving up that machine because it's going to ultimately pay so many dividends um, that um, go beyond, uh, you know, just the traditional strategies that you would normally use. Patrick Ruffini, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me. Thank you. Now I wanted to get inside the mind of someone who's spending money on political ads this cycle. So I sat down with Guy Cecil. He's the chairman of Priorities USA, a Democratic super PAC, to find out how they're prioritizing digital advertising versus a more traditional platform like television. I think there's two really important things just to start off with. Number one, it's not just young people online. You know, there are voters of every age who are on Facebook, who are online, who are engaged in a lot of different ways. When we're thinking about targeting a set of voters, whether we're trying to persuade them to vote for us or we're trying to persuade somebody that is with us to go out and vote, it covers age, it covers gender, it covers diversity about race, sexual orientation. Everybody is online. I think the second piece that's really important to recognize is that when we talk about advertising, we don't simply mean we're creating videos. For us, advertising may mean static images. It may mean directing people to a website where they can learn um, how much the Republican health care plan is going to cost them. It might include a voter guide on how they vote on key issues. It might actually just include an, an article from their local newspaper or a clip from their local news station that we think is an important piece of information for them to have. And so we start with who are we trying to reach? And then in terms of what we decide to run, it really starts with you know a polling process on how do we think about the macro set of issues or the macro set of characteristics of our candidate we want to highlight. But honestly, polling becomes less and less of a valuable source because it's one thing to ask somebody on the phone or online to rank 20 issues. It's another thing to create interesting creative content in 15 seconds or in a couple of seconds while they're scrolling through Facebook. So we have a creative team in-house. They go through a whole ideation process. They think about all sorts of ways for us to communicate with voters from what may seem the most creative to the most mundane. Um, they both sometimes work. And then we use a lot of uh, online ad testing. We do creative panels where we interview people about their responses to our ads or how it affects their opinion about a particular race or a particular person. Um, and then monitor also the engagement with that ad as time goes on. And so the program varies widely depending on the person that we're trying to reach. So you were just in Florida yes. uh, as the president was kicking or re-kicking off his campaign in Orlando. Can you tell us who you were aiming those digital ads and sure. what platforms? How would someone in Florida, someone in the Orlando area see you? Sure. Stuff? So in that particular case, a lot of the work we were doing were actually off of social media platforms. So we were um, focusing on people through news sites, through other avenues that they might be getting news and information that wasn't necessarily social media. Um, we'll also be up in three or four weeks in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Florida, that will be more of a full-service program. So folks might see a static image or a video on Facebook. They might see something on Hulu. They might see something on Instagram. I think the other really important piece here is a lot of times people feel the compulsion to 
to sort of simplify it, appeal to the head and the heart all in one ad, right? It's like, how do we create a 15-second ad that tugs at their heartstrings, shares important information about healthcare, names the candidate, gives us the election date? The reality is we don't have to do that all in one ad, right? That we can run advertising simultaneous to one another. We can run it sequentially to one another. And so one of the advantages of starting this early, I mean, it's June and July that we're starting, uh, which is unusual for most advertising campaigns, is that we intend to stay up through the election of next year. So it allows us to have a conversation with people and not just browbeat them with bunting. And I mean, we've all seen the TV ads, the politician that's in a hard hat walking through some sort of facility, nodding very earnestly at the person that they're talking to. Um, we can be maybe a little less heavy handed. Um, the other thing I think it's really important is sometimes we also don't talk about the candidate at all. Sometimes we just talk about the importance of voting on the particular issue that that person cares about as a way to get them engaged in the process without thinking solely about who's running. Guy Cecil is chairman of Priorities USA, a Democratic super PAC. This is Jennifer from Northern California. I check and research the political ad that I see on social media before assuming it is real or trustworthy. Advertisements online have come a long way from the pop-up ads and spam emails of the early days of the internet. Our entire online experience goes hand in hand with these ads, seamlessly woven around our browsing. But when I spoke with New York Times tech columnist Kevin Roos, when it comes to politics, campaigns are still struggling to figure out how to leverage this technology. Right now in the U.S., if you just look at all advertising companies, nonprofits, every everyone that advertises, it's about 54 cents out of every dollar that is spent on advertising is spent online. Um, and in politics, that's much, much lower. Just how much? So for every dollar a campaign spends, about three to five cents go to digital media. That's it. Well, some of them say, we, you know, we, we don't know if digital ads work as effectively as TV or direct mail ads. But a lot of them will say, yeah, we should be spending a lot more. And the reason that we're not is because the consultants that run these advertising campaigns are still sort of coming from this world where TV and direct mail were the way that you reach people. And some of them actually get paid based on the amount of of sort of TV advertising that they place. So there's an incentive there to lean heavily into older forms of media. But I think that's starting to change. I think that Democrats especially saw what happened in 2016 with the Trump campaign running tons and tons of Facebook ads and are sort of starting to catch up. The other thing I hear from campaigns about why not digital or why not more in digital, it's really hard to track you don't know necessarily if your ads have been run or who's seeing them. Are these bots? Are these real people? There seems like a sort of a Wild West piece. I think the measurement piece of it I find interesting because I, I think there's an argument to be made that you can actually track the effectiveness of digital ads much more so than uh, hmm. TV or direct mail ads. I mean, if you send someone uh, a flyer in the mail, you don't know whether they opened it and looked at it and studied it or whether they tossed it immediately in the trash can. So at least on Facebook and Google and platforms like that, you can see, you know, how many people clicked, how many people, you know, gave their email addresses, how many people donated. Um, And that's a, a powerful form of measurement that I think makes the case for more digital advertising. 
And is that a challenge, too, for Democrats who are counting on younger voters that on the one hand, this is a very digital generation and they're used to getting information digitally. And yet at the same time, they are more sort of I don't know if it's the word is cynical or they're just sort of used to seeing these things so that they're not quite as effective. Right. They don't break through in the same way. Right. I think that's certainly true of of some types of sort of conventional campaign ads. I think younger people are are less likely to watch, you know, a produced 30 second uh, video ad that looks like it belongs on TV. But Mm. they do respond to sort of authentic, organic content on these social platforms. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a great example of someone who, you know, she runs ads on social media, but a lot of what she does is not advertising. It's it's just posting from her accounts and, you know, portraying her herself and her life and her work in a way that people can relate to. And that's, I think that's sort of more of how you reach younger voters um, this cycle. A, they're, they're probably not on Facebook. They're probably on Instagram or Snapchat mm-hmm. or somewhere else. But B, the, the actual type of content needs to change. Do you feel as you're covering this that you have a handle on how campaigns are using the digital space t- to talk to voters? I, I usually try to spend time um, at least once a week going through the sort of archive of Facebook ads and trying to just mm-hmm. see what the candidates are up to, see what kinds of messages they're putting out. The problem is that they're trying so many different messages. I mean, the Trump campaign has has tested out millions of, of Facebook ads. Um, and sometimes they might only be, you know, one pixel different, but they're testing to see what works the best. So it's really hard to go through even a small fraction of the ads that are going on Facebook um, or, or on Google. You know, you're drinking from a fire hose. Right. This isn't like the old days where, you know, you knew which... TV ads went up and you could see those and everybody in the media market you were in was getting the exact same ad. Now, the person sitting next to you on the bus may be getting a very different ad from the same candidate as you are. Exactly. And these these campaigns are getting savvier about micro-targeting, um, showing different kinds of ads to different voters so that you know, an elderly male voter will see a, a, a very different set of ads on uh, on his Facebook feed than uh, a younger female voter might. Hmm. And then let's look ahead to 2020. I, I remember in 2008, the, the big tech innovation in that election was that uh, the Obama campaign sent out text messages about who the VP pick would be. And then in 2012, it was Facebook that was the breakthrough technology. And then we went into Snapchat and Instagram in 2016 and 2020. Is there a new app or digital venue that you see in 2020 that that's going to be like sort of redefining digital in this election? I think there's a lot of interesting political advertising potential on YouTube. I think that's a an area that campaigns are starting to explore. I've certainly seen a number of campaign ads already on on YouTube this cycle. Um, And then I think this peer-to-peer texting phenomenon is going to continue um, to grow. I think that's going to be a a central piece of these campaigns, especially in in sort of their mobilization phase, where they're not just raising money or getting email addresses, but when they're trying to actually get people out to events, actually get people out to the polls, I think you'll start seeing a lot more of that. Um, 
happily or unhappily, a lot of people um, are sort of bristling at the number of text messages that they're getting from candidates. So um, I hope the, for their sake that they'll just sort of take it easy on the number. Kevin Roos, thank you so much for helping us walk through and understand all of this. Great. Thank you for having me. This is Barbara Anderson. I'm calling from Brownsville, Oregon. I don't check on the political ads that I find on social media because I don't pay attention to them. I pay attention to opinions from people and sources that I have confidence in, uh, a candidate's debate performance, and here in Oregon, the voters' pamphlet statements, uh, as well as their records so far if they have been an incumbent. I don't look at political ads. While we've heard a lot about why campaigns should be turning their focus toward the digital arena, there are still questions about whether or not the internet platforms on which these advertisements will live are effective or even safe. We need to check who are trying to influence my decision. The limitation is it is almost impossible for individual voters to verify and identify who are behind these digital campaigns. That's Youngmi Kim. She's a professor at the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her research is a part of Project Data, which is an acronym for Digital Ad Tracking and Analysis. They examined campaign ads during the 2016 election. We collected about 87 million ads across the platforms that include Facebook, Google, and Twitter. They're exposed to about 17,000 individuals. And the sheer quantity of what she and her team were able to collect underscore how difficult it is to get a true sense of how many different messages are being put out there. The challenge we had in the data collection was that digital ads were designed to target individuals only. In other words, if you are targeted by political campaign, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm exposed to the same message because the same political campaign probably didn't target me because we are different people. It is almost impossible to track digital ads. But Professor Kim and her team cast a big net. We developed an app that worked like an ad blocker, but instead of just blocking the ads, we collected the ad, we detected uh, digital ads by heuristics uh, and transferred the ads with the meta information like a landing page information to my research server. And what her team found on Facebook alone confirmed the extent to which nefarious actors were meddling in the presidential race. We tracked 5 million Facebook paid messages, that is, uh, sponsored news feed and right column ads, like a small ad item on your right side, uh, that were exposed to nearly 10,000 volunteer participants between September 28th and November 8th, 2016. So that's six weeks prior to the election day. And the timing here is important because during this final push before the election, The FEC has laws that require political advertisements aired within 60 days of an election to disclose who paid for the ad and whether or not it was made in conjunction with the candidate's campaign. But the rules don't apply to digital ads. There is no rule, unfortunately. Uh, There was a rule about disclaimers on the digital platforms. But back in 2011, tech platforms like Google and Facebook lobbied very hard 
and they claim that digital ads are very different than other types of ads, like a broadcast ads. So basically, we ended up no rules on digital ads. And lots of outside groups took advantage of this loophole. What we found is that only 8% of the ad sponsors could file the reports to FAC. More shockingly, more than half of the sponsors were unidentifiable and untrackable, meaning they did not leave any public footprint. And we set aside the sponsors for almost a year when the House Intelligence Committee released the group names run by the Internet Research Agency, Kremlin-linked Russian group. Then we found that one out of a six our suspicious group turned out to be the IRA groups. So bottom line, Professor Kim's team analyzed 5 million ads on Facebook during the 2016 election and found that a majority of them were not complying with FEC rules regarding disclosure. More importantly, a sizable percentage of those undisclosed ads turned out to be Russian in origin. There was still an open question of whether or not an online misinformation campaign was actually successful in changing a voter's behavior. You know, it is almost impossible to measure effectiveness. And first of all, it depends on how you define effectiveness. Second, what we want to know is, is causal inferences. So, for example, whether digital ads influence voters' decision for uh, for centuries, like you know, social scientists like try to understand the causal relationship, and it is uh, really difficult to untangle. But even if we can't prove whether or not these misinformation campaigns work, undisclosed groups and campaigns are still pouring lots of resources into trying to change behavior. Our research shows that during the 2016 IRA, like Russians, like clearly targeted. African-American voters with the voter suppression ads. So in other words, neither candidate will serve like a black voters, like a, so you should not go to the poll. And then we found that these ads were just like sent out a lot like on the election day, like at 3 a.m. Uh, on the election day, boom, like there are certain voter suppression ads targeting specific types of people. So we can gauge like what the strategy behind this. So what's being done to push back on this? We did have nothing back in 2016. So yes, like it's a lot better uh, than before. So we are in a lot better situation. Social media platforms have made some efforts at reform with commitments to disclosure and transparency. Currently, transparency measures include a couple of things. Like one, verification of sponsors. So that case, like a Facebook, for example, verify political ad sponsors' addresses, whether they are based in the U.S., but you can create like a paper company, paper organization, or you can work with the domestic actors, then you can just get through that. So there are still a lot of loopholes. And when it comes to real reform, actual regulations, legislation that focuses on policing the message but not cracking down on the messenger, Professor Kim says it might miss the mark. I'm not advocating for content regulation. Unfortunately, a lot of discussion, public discussion about digital as or digital uh, campaign reform focuses on the content or content moderation. 
removing like misinformation. That is important, but it's a very, very difficult task. And like we saw with the last-minute ads attempting to suppress the African-American vote, it's not enough for tech companies to promise just to root out misinformation. If tech platforms just need to uh, fight against it, it has to be really quick. But if they have to debate what voter suppression ads means, what you know component constitute voter suppression, we are already behind and, and a lot of voter suppression already out. Uh, so it's just like a really important to have like, a consistent uh, rules. We just heard from Young Me Kim from the University of Wisconsin-Madison about the importance of consistent rules to govern political ads online. The trouble is, nobody from our elected leaders to the Federal Election Commission has been able to reach a consensus on what would be appropriate. That hasn't stopped them from trying, though. On Thursday, the FEC met to consider new regulations, and I spoke to FEC Chair Ellen Weintraub shortly after the meeting concluded about her proposal and why an agreement has been so difficult to come by. What I think the commission has been struggling with for years is how to adapt to the digital environment. Advertising is moving there at a rapid pace, as you well know. This is not an insignificant part of uh, campaign's political strategy, and we need to make sure that everyone who is seeing information online knows where it's coming from. If I could get my colleagues to agree to a broader approach, I would do it. But this is the best that I could do, is to get them to agree to update our regulations on uh, express advocacy advertising on the internet. And uh, today we had a meeting where we discussed uh, a couple of competing proposals, and we're going to bring it back up at our next meeting on July 11th, and we'll see whether we can bridge the gap between now and then. Well, what is the gap about? I mean, again, this is something that campaigns have had to do for years, which is put a disclaimer on their television advertising. So why is it so controversial to have to put that on a digital ad? Well, it shouldn't be controversial. And I I do think that a lot of campaigns and a lot of those who are uh, advertising online are doing it. The platforms have uh, stepped up to some degree and tried to uh, provide, uh, make it easier for folks to put these kinds of disclaimers on their ads. But some folks have taken the position that, well, gee, things on the internet are so tiny. How can we fit a disclaimer on there? And I think that one, one, thing that we know about the internet is that it's very flexible. There's a lot of technological ways of providing information to the extent that it really is not possible to provide the information on the face of the ad. One could use um, links or other technological mechanisms to take somebody to a a landing page where one might find um, more thorough information. I personally think it is really important, and this is uh, an area of, this is one of the areas that we will have to bridge, but I think it is very important that there be some information on the face of the ad. We know that not everybody clicks through to find more information, that the click-through rate is actually pretty low. In the commercial context, I think it's in the 1% to 3%. I don't think we're going to see a lot of political ads that have clickbaity slogans like, you won't believe who's funding this ad that might inspire people to um, click through and find the information. So I want to make sure that our requirements are as tight as possible and ensure that the American people will have the best information available to them when they're looking at ads online. 
if in, today I were to scroll through one of my many platforms that I'm on and I see a 15 second advertising that's expressly saying vote against or vote for did you know this horrible thing about this candidate today that is supposed to I'm supposed to know legally who is sponsoring that ad yes yes you are how much is out out there that is not clear to people about who this is and who's paying for it and where they come from you know, I think it depends on who's placing the ads. I think the most sophisticated political um, players, the the principal campaign committees, party committees, the ones that really have a reputational stake in uh, not trying to duck the rules, they are following the rules. It is possible to put disclaimers on all these advertisements, and uh, I think people of, uh, of goodwill are trying to abide by that. Now, there are always people who will push the envelope, uh, who will try to avoid putting the disclaimers on. Some people chafe at the obligation to uh, add information that's not part of their primary message of advocating for or against the candidate. But the Supreme Court has upheld this and has said that it is really important that the American public be informed about where the information is coming from. It's I, I think it's impossible to judge the credibility of an ad if you don't know where it's coming from. Right. And obviously, the nefarious actors in this case we learned in 2016 were not campaigns at all. They were either Russians or, as you said, they were bots. Yes. Some of the nefarious actors are nefarious indeed. And, you know, honestly, are are those folks going to um, suddenly sit up straight and fly right because the FEC issues a new rule? Likely not. But I do think that it is better to have clearer rules, that it creates more of an incentive for more people to provide the information that is required under the law. Uh, you know, this this rulemaking has actually been in the works since 2011, and it used to be kind of a sleeper issue that nobody was paying much attention to. But when we learned about how much misinformation we were getting online uh, after the 2016 election and during the 2016 election, I think people really woke up to this when we uh, put out our proposals for comment after that and said, gee, do you think we ought to do this rulemaking? Hundreds of thousands of people weighed in and said, yes, of course you should do this rulemaking. We do want better information. Uh, We want to find out where this information is coming from. So I think uh, really it behooves us to get our act together and find a path forward that will provide that kind of clarity and important information to the American public. So how likely is it that you will find this clarity? before we hit the 2020 election, that there will be uh, new rules in place that the FEC has agreed to? I would not want to wager any predictions at this point. Um, I think there are some aspects of my proposal that are negotiable and others that are less negotiable. As I said, it's it's key to me that we get some information on the face of the ad so that even if people don't click through, they've got some information in front of them. Ellen Weintraub, thank you so much for taking the time and talking with me about this. Thank you, Amy, and thank you for your reporting on this issue. I think it is so important. We asked you when you see a political ad on social media if you check where it comes from. 
This is George Joe from Chemist, Washington. I assume political ads are all some level of false, and I choose not to believe political ads unless I put the research on where the ad came from or what the ad claims. Fake news has gotten fairly out of hand, and I don't like to rely on any information unless credible sources are provided. Hi, it's Terry, Bergen County, New Jersey. I can't trust if it's accurate. I wonder who's paying for it and if it's part of a multi-blast to appear as if it's from different sources when the money, money is really ultimately from the same opinionated source. Hi, this is Lou Stern. I'm calling from Falmouth, Massachusetts on Cape Cod. Every time I get any political ad on social media, I check it out. You never know where it's coming from. But I rely less on social media than really good publications that are evidence-based, like the New York Times, National Public Radio, CNN, BBC. My name is Kate, and I'm calling from Los Angeles, California. I absolutely care about where political ads on social media come from, and I'm all for making it blatantly obvious to see who's paying for them. Not the umbrella name of a group of contributors, but the real names of those providing the funding for the ads. I need this information to better understand the possible motivations behind each ad. Lots of thoughts from you guys. Thanks so much for calling. For so many black people, the whiz feels like home. home. The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing. And as it gears up for a national tour, we'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to The Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We end the hour today with another interview in our Canada Talk series. Michael Bennett is the senior U.S. senator from Colorado, currently serving his second term. And when I talked to him about his motivations for a presidential run, he had his targets locked on what he sees as the real reason behind so much of the dysfunction in Washington. We have been basically tyrannized for the last 10 years by the so-called Freedom Caucus. They have immobilized our government, and now they've installed a president that they could never have imagined that they would have. And the damage that they've done to our country and to our politics has been astonishing, really. And my argument is that we can't sustain another 10 years like that. I mean, we, America, can't sustain another 10 years like that if my generation's not going to be the first generation to leave less opportunity not more to the people coming after us. And we certainly can't sustain it if we are going to do something about the very urgent problem of climate change in this generation, which we need to do. And I'm sick and tired of losing to climate deniers. And we've got a climate denier in the White House. Mitch McConnell and the Freedom Caucus have prevented our moving forward on climate for 10 years. I don't want to prevent them from doing it for another 10 years. And I think we, we need to be at least as strategic as McConnell is. When Democrats did have control of the Senate back in the Obama era, back in 2009, the one major piece of climate legislation that didn't even make it to a floor vote, again, was when a Democrat was in charge of the Senate, was cap and trade, which was a significant environmental piece of legislation. So even Democrats have been unable to move the ball forward on climate. Yeah, because we uh, we haven't proposed things that we can sell to the middle of the country. I don't mean the middle of our politics, I mean geographically. And we did we didn't do it then and we're not doing it now. I mean, I'm trying to do it now. Um, and I think that the thing we can't do is compromise on the science of climate change. 
I feel as urgent about this as anybody else. I've got three daughters, and I used to be the superintendent of Denver Public Schools, and I find it disgraceful, not only that we haven't dealt with climate, but that we haven't done it in a way that actually creates a durable solution. You can't legislate climate two years at a time. You can't put it in and then and then hope McConnell won't take it out. I mean, he'll, he will take it out unless you can create a durable, enduring solution. The other piece of your climate plan, you note at the end, you, you put a timeline together of how this would go through the process from literally day one of your presidency. And then by basically the end of September of that first year, so by 2021, nine months after your inauguration, you make the point that if this plan has not been completed legislatively, you will use executive authority to implement it. Is your argument then, boy, I pretty much expect that we're going to have to do this through executive authority? Or is that a pressure point onto Mitch McConnell if he is the majority leader to say, look, we're going to do this one way or another. You can work with us or I'm going to go do this through executive authority. Look, I think, it, as I was saying earlier, we, we, it is critical for us to act on climate. And I think there are ways under the Clean Air Act for a president to be able to act unilaterally. That's not my preference. But if that's what we need to do, that's what we need to do. And then what you will have to do if you can't get it through Congress, but you can only do it through executive order, is go out to the country and sustain what you've done. Virtually every single thing that Barack Obama did on climate has been ripped out by, by, by these climate deniers at the EPA and the White House. You know, the clean power plan, the, the fuel efficiency standards for cars. Almost all of it is gone and in tatters. And we can't, as I was just saying to you earlier, we can't continue to do that. But if there is no way to overcome McConnell and the Freedom Caucus, and there is the ability to lawfully act um, uh, on uh, as an executive order on climate, and then a president can defend that executive order in the courts and defend that executive order in the country, I think that is what is required. You can't just throw up your hands and say, we can't deal with this ex- existential problem that the planet faces. Let's do a more 30,000-foot look about your candidacy. And, you know, the running joke now is, there are hundreds of people running for president on the Democratic side. How can you tell them apart? But let's just go to the essential question for every candidate here who's jumped into this race, which is, what is missing from this field that you are providing that no other candidate has provided? I think it's the discussion you and I had at the beginning of this conversation, which is a a clear-eyed diagnosis of why we cannot govern ourselves in America, and an acknowledgement that if we don't change that, all these promises that people are making are, are empty. And that's different than what anybody else in the field is providing. It's not anything anybody really likes to hear. I regret saying it, but it's true. If we don't solve for this Freedom Caucus problem, uh, we're going to have a hard time governing the country. In fact, I don't think we can. So that is very different than what anybody else is saying. Uh, I think beyond that, coming from Colorado, coming from a Western state and having a set of policy approaches that I think are perhaps more broadly acceptable to the American people than some of the other proposals that have been made, I think will wear well over time. But we'll see. Well, the argument from some of your colleagues in this race, like Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, or John Hickenlooper, former governor of your state, or Tim Ryan from Ohio would be, well, that's what I'm saying, too. I have a pragmatic 
message come from the middle of the country, one in purple states. So can you distinguish then between others who are also making an argument similar to yours that there's a place? I just think, I mean, I don't want, I'm, some of these people are my friends and I admire them and I like them. So I don't have any desire to denigrate anybody. I think I've got a very different set of experiences in the Senate uh, accomplishing bipartisan work here. And then my experiences before the superintendent of the Denver Public Schools and in business are different than those other candidates. But we also have very different personalities and very different approaches. I actually think it's a good thing that we've got a million people running. It may sound self-serving of me to say that, but I don't think America has any idea what the National Democratic Party stands for at this point. And, I, and there's a reason for that. So having a bunch of people running with a bunch of different ideas and having the opportunity to litigate those ideas in front of the American people, I think is good not only for the party, but for the democracy as well. You don't think it's going to be more confusing to Americans, though, to see 20, 30 people out there saying, this is who the Democratic Party is. No, this is who the Democratic Party is. It may, it may, it may be confusing, but we lost to Donald Trump. That's an unacceptable outcome to me. And we can't go down that road again. And the fact is, there is nobody yet who's earned this nomination against Donald Trump. The people that are the leading candidates are unlikely to be the leading candidates at the end of this process, if history is any guide. And we're just going to have to see. And there's no, you know, there's no way to legislate away presidential candidates. So um, let's, have this, let's have this argument and see where it leads. Senator Michael Bennett, thank you so much for taking this time with me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Michael Bennett, senior U.S. Senator from Colorado since 2009 and Democratic presidential candidate. And here's a final thought for me today. We spent much of the show talking about digital political advertising. The creation of a technology that comes in and disrupts the way we communicate with each other is an age-old story. I mean, think back to the printing press. We have our initial struggles with it, who can use it, how we use it, how we make it as fair as possible, but eventually we figure it out. And when I think about how we navigate this technological moment, I think a lot about the show Mad Men. At the beginning of the series, the big shots in the firm were the guys who knew how to make really good print ads, you know, the kind that would show up in Life magazine. And the guy who did the TV advertising, well, he got shoved away in a small closet-sized office where most people ignored him. Obviously, the tables soon turned, but there's still a long period of time where this newfangled TV thing was seen as more of a distraction than a serious vehicle to sell products. The challenge today, however, feels a lot different from those early TV days. One big difference is that the medium is evolving a lot faster than most of us can keep pace with. But the most important and problematic difference is that our polarized politics make it almost impossible for the institutions who should help us navigate and regulate this new technology do their job. Bipartisan legislation to update transparency and disclosure rules for online political advertising has been languishing in Congress for more than two years. And the FEC remains deadlocked too, thanks in part to the members who vote party line. This leaves us vulnerable to more election interference from bad actors, which will once again raise questions about the integrity of the election and the legitimacy of our elected officials lather, rinse, repeat. But this is an unsustainable cycle. If those in charge continue to put short-term political interests over the longer-term safety and security of the election system, the system itself, our democratic election process, breaks down because no one trusts it. 
And that's a place none of us really wants to go. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.